Thanks, John. We're continuing our series in this book, 1 Thessalonians. So you might like to keep your Bible open there if you have one in front of you. Uh, Secular Sam is successful. Not talking about any of the Sams uh, that we know. Uh, He has a good job, uh, a nice girlfriend, beautiful house, the mortgage paid off. He's in excellent health. He's funny, smart and personable. Secular Sam is also a Christian and quite an active one. Uh, at that, though he's chosen to leave behind some of the more embarrassing parts of the Christian faith. His approach to the Bible is theologically conservative and he believes in the authority of the scriptures. Uh, He's come to see that the Bible gives the, the most satisfying explanation for all kinds of different things, uh, from the origin of the world to the meaning of life. As a student of the Bible, Sam can realistically examine humanity's sinfulness. He can even speak with his uh, secular friends and and argue with uh, clarity and conviction uh, on the the evidence, the, the historical evidence for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that all of life is under the scrutiny of, of God's word, not just his religion, uh, but also business and philosophy and economics and law and, well, everything. And so you ask, well, what is it that makes this secular Sam so secular? Sam is secular because his hopes... And his concerns, even about his own spiritual life, are all contained within this seculum, the the Latin word from which we get secular. Sam is secular because his hopes and concerns, even about his own spiritual life, are all contained within this life, this, this age. Sam assumes that tomorrow will just be like today. And that has some serious implications for the way that he thinks about today. Mark Deaver, he begins an essay on that, this passage that we're looking at this afternoon by saying something like, you know, this secular Sam. And then he says this, we can easily understand how in a society at large or in an individual's life, a kind of creeping unbelief can gain the upper hand. One may begin by believing in this age as well as the next, but he will soon begin concentrating on this age as well as the next, emphasising this age rather than the next, thinking less of the next, de-emphasising the next, questioning the next, ignoring the next, forgetting about the next, and finally denying the next. Deva says, as our churches do more and more to help us cope with this life, and this life can be really hard, can't it? As our churches do more and more to help us cope with this life, and less and less to help prepare us for the next, this secularism has grown in both society and the church. Is it that way for you? Your peace, your security, all wrapped up in the here and now. Your hopes and dreams, 
all related to this life, not really thinking about the next. Well, I hope 1 Thessalonians will shake us out of that this afternoon. Paul makes two points. The first is he just points us to the funeral service at the end of chapter 4. And the second, uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, he points to the, the second coming of of Jesus. First, the funeral service. It's difficult to know what was going on in this uh, church in Thessalonica back in the first century. But it seems from verse 13, they're worrying about their dead. And it would make sense because we know from earlier in the letter at the end of chapter 1, these people, they've heard the good news of Jesus and they've turned away from their pagan past They've turned away from idol worship to serve the true and living God, present tense, and to wait for Jesus' return, and they're being persecuted for this new faith that they have. It's when you're prepared to suffer for something that you say that you believe that people will begin to believe you actually believe it. And the Thessalonians were suffering. It's possible some suffering even to the point of death. And so you imagine a community so concerned, what happens to our dead? They didn't tuck the graveyards away like we do. Death was on the radar. We could die because of this Jesus stuff. Do those who die miss out on the, in some way? because Jesus hasn't returned yet? It could be that, or perhaps when Paul, Silas and Timothy visited uh, these uh, people in Thessalonians and, and did Christianity explored with them, uh, they were rightly readied for Jesus' return, but maybe they didn't get filled in on the bit about people dying before Jesus' return. It's not so much something we struggle with today, is it? But Paul says, no, they won't miss out. Actually, it's, it's quite the opposite. And here Paul is not arguing for soul sleep as the intermediate state or for that end time view of rapture that was popularised a, a, a generation ago with some strange movies. No, his concern, it's a pastoral concern his concern is for a community worried about their dead. And he says, verse 13, we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. No, our hopes and dreams are not secular. They're not narrowed to the here and now. Why verse 14? Just look at that verse with me if your Bible's there. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It sounds like an early creed, doesn't it? Uh, for we believe. You can imagine a community saying this, reciting it together. Uh, fallen asleep here is reference to death. And in him is reference to union with Christ. This is the theme of the believer. What happens to Jesus happens to me. Such is the believer's connection to Jesus. 
Paul says it really clearly in Romans 6. You die with Christ, you rise with him, spiritually speaking. You die with him, you rise with him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this will happen bodily in the future. Such is our solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as I go to the Bundaberg Airport and board a plane uh, destined for, for Brisbane, I hop on that plane, where it goes, I go. Such is the believer's connection to Jesus, where he goes, we go. To the believers in Thessalonica worried about their dead, Paul loads up the imagery. Firstly, verse 15, we read, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, describing the coming of the Lord here, Paul uses a word that was commonly used when a Roman emperor would do an official visit to a region. To welcome the emperor in, a delegation would be sent out from the city, usually the wealthy people, the famous people, and they'd, they'd all get dressed up. They'd go and meet the emperor. They'd welcome the emperor. It it would be some fanfare. And then they would join the entourage in welcoming this ruler in. Those who have died before the coming of Jesus, they're not going to miss out, says Paul. They won't be left behind. The dead in Christ will be first to welcome Jesus in. Paul continues with this sort of royal military imagery, doesn't he? First, the Lord descends from heaven, verse 16. There's some, there's some commotion, a loud command, the voice of the archangel, a, a trumpet blast. Second, verse 16, the, the dead Christians will be resurrected. Third, verse 17, believers, both those who have died and those living will be joined to the descending Lord. Now, as I read that, I I reckon a literal trumpet blast would be a wonderful thing to signal the end of things. Uh, And all of this commotion, including the clouds in verse 17, in the Old Testament particularly, whenever God shows up, there's clouds. But as Marshall comments, a real event is being described, but it is one which cannot be described literally since the direct activity of God cannot be fully comprehended in human language. The Bible writers have therefore had to resort to analogy and metaphor, the language of symbol, in order to convey their message. It's a wonderful picture though, isn't it? A loud voice, the archangel, a trumpet sounding, the, the clouds. It's the end. He's here. The old has gone and the new has come. Don't worry about your dead, says Paul. They're in Christ. Where he goes, they go. They'll be a part of the entourage welcoming him in with all of that activity and and commotion. What, what, What an event. And we read the end of verse 17 and 18. And so we will be with the Lord forever. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so as we gather as a church, as we catch up and do coffee with one another, this is what we're to encourage each other with, isn't it? As we share our struggles, we say to each other, just remember what this life is about. We're waiting for his return. This life is not enough to fulfill our hopes and dreams our peace and security. We're made for more. I mean, Australia is a a beautiful place. Bundaberg's a wonderful place. Bagara's even better. (laughs) Some of you are thinking of moving out here. (laughs) But please don't settle for what is good to miss out on what is best. We're made to live with the Lord forever. And you and I have a job to encourage and remind one another of this truth. Nigel Stiles, he tells the story of a Romanian pastor who was persecuted for his faith. And this pastor, he said, the greatest threat that they have is the power to kill you. Our greatest victory is to die. So whenever they told me we're going to kill you, I said, I can hardly wait. Paul said to the Christians at Philippi, I'd rather be with Christ. It's better by far to live is Christ, yes, but to die is gain. It's a wonderful truth. On that ship in that chaotic storm, Wesley, the famous hymn writer, he was struck by the Moravian missionaries. They're women and children who didn't fear death. He said to one of the men, don't you fear death? No. (laughs) No, came the answer. No, we don't fear death. And you and I, we have a job to remind each other of this, to encourage one another in this. We're to be a church that readies each other for the life that is to come. We're not devastated when a believer dies. Of course, we grieve and we miss them. It can be really hard. What We said goodbye to our dear brother Peter Brown not so long ago. But we grieve with hope. There's more to life than this. That pastoral concern for the dead brought us to the topic of the coming of the Lord Jesus. But it's, it's really, if you've read the letter, and it's only 2,000 words, so I hope you've all read it. But that theme is really, it's infused throughout the whole letter, isn't it? At the end of chapter 1, these new believers, what are they doing? Present tense, they're serving God while they wait for Jesus' return. At the end of chapter 2, it's the believers in Thessalonica who will be, Paul says, his joy and his crown when? When Jesus returns. And so what does he do in the present tense? He serves them that their faith might increase the end of chapter 3 Paul prays for the strengthening of the Thessalonians that they might be blameless in the presence of God the Father when when the Lord Jesus returns 
And we've just looked at the start of chapter 4 and in chapter 5 the theme continues. Do you get the impression that if we're not readying each other to die, if we're not ready to die, something's gone astray? It's possible the Thessalonians were worried about this day of the Lord. Uh, perhaps curious about its timing, but also worried about the judgment of that day and whether they would escape it. And so in those first 11 verses of chapter 5, Paul may be responding to this and so settling their nerves. Just look at those first three verses I'll read. Now, brothers and sisters, he says, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the nights. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's always someone kicking around, uh, often on YouTube, trying to work out when Jesus will actually return. Or maybe they think they know. They're usually a bit of a strange sort of character. But Paul says, like Jesus said before him, we don't know when. Just as a half-decent thief won't rock up when everyone is prepared, so it will be with Jesus' return. And when Jesus, Jesus returns, what does Paul say? It will happen when people are saying peace and safety. Here Paul picks up on some Roman propaganda. They had peace and safety written, printed on some of their coins and monuments. An encouragement to trust in the Roman rule, to trust in the power and strength of this age. And it's tempting for us to do the same, isn't it? When people are finding their peace and safety in this life, It'll be like those labour pains. Sudden, unavoidable, unexpected, it will be destruction, says Paul. But you, but you, verse 4 to 8, let me read. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. The believer is to be ready, he's saying. The believer is to be steady, waiting, praying, like the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Um, did, I, did I tell you I turned 40 um, just recently? Uh, Tuesday I turned 40. Um, it, we, I don't celebrate birthdays very well normally, but we thought we'll pull the kids out of school. We went to Agnes for the day. It was wonderful. I was talking to my older brother on the phone, and he said the upside of 40 is that people begin to listen to you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think that's true. Um, He's older than me and over 40 and I'm not listening. Uh, 
but the old body, it is starting to feel it. Uh, when we think of worldliness, we might think of particular sins. And when we were out at the farm, we looked at uh, Luke chapter 15, where there was that young rebellious son, uh, and it was parties and prostitutes for him. Uh, when we think of worldliness, we, we might think of those sorts of things. But at its, at its core, at its heart, worldliness is thinking that this, this life, this world, is everything. It's secularism. So that all of my focus is on my peace and security here. Now, when you get older like me, uh, you begin to reflect on life a little more. Uh, that was a joke. I'm not that up. Many of you are older than me. Um, but J.I. Pack has written a book uh, which is worth reading for older people, but we can all read it. And it's called Finishing Our Course with Joy. And in it, he talks about how over the years, the, the Christian life is fought over different issues. Uh, for the young, the, the pressure to have a partner can push us into the arms of a non-Christian. For the worker, the, the, the pressure to sell yourself to, to slavery, to, to, to put on the ball and chain of career, can be a temptation. For the, for the parent, it can be idolising our kids that that they may have the best education, that we may give them absolutely every opportunity possible. For all of us, in different ways, trying to, to feather the nest, so to speak, that we might feel good, so that we're happy, so that we might enjoy life here and now. As verse 3 says, peace and security. Peace and security. Peace and security. And for the senior believers, expectations for retirement. It's all about taking it easy, prioritising self-indulgence for the rest of our lives. It's my turn to sit back and take it easy. All different versions of pursuing peace and security in this life. Hopes and dreams all wrapped up in this life. It's worldliness. It's secularism. But that's not you, says Paul to the believers in Thessalonica. But that's not you, he says to us. No, we belong to the day, to the day that is to come. A day that in some senses began, has begun already through the person and work of Jesus when he entered history and lived that perfect life and, and died that sacrificial death in our place and, and rose from death to life and ascended to the Father. But a day and age that will fully and finally come about upon his return. So what do we do? Well, verses 8 to 11 is just wonderful, isn't it, for application. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. 
For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And verse 11, the application, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing, and it's the same back in chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words, our peace and security is not found here. It's not. It's not found here. It's not narrowed to this life, and I am so glad that is true because I'm 40. (laughs) And we're to encourage one another with this truth. You know, Greg... He was reading this passage. He took it seriously. And he began turning up to church early and staying right till the end. He thought that might just give me opportunity to remind my brothers and sisters this life is just the beginning. And Melissa, she was challenged to adjust her prayer life. She she noticed with her kids, she often prayed, but mostly about the exam results and all the relational issues. But she noticed as she began to reframe her prayers, heaven is our home, each day is one day nearer. The day-to-day anxieties weren't that great. Paul realised, like secular Sam, he just settled for what was good in place of what is great. And he began meditating on the blessed hope each and every day. We don't live for the here and now. You tell yourself this, you preach this, I don't live for the here and now. Early one morning, a frightened little boy ran to his mum and he said, oh, mum, the world is coming to an end, the stars are falling Startled from her sleep, the mother, she rushed to the window and and she saw what was probably one of the most remarkable meteor showers that ever occurred. One competent observer declared that he had never seen snowflakes thicker in a storm than there were in the sky some moments that day. The meteors made no sound and none were reported to have hit the earth. Everywhere, people were falling on their faces thinking the end of the world had come. But what did that mother say when when she saw what she thought was the end? Thank you, God. I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you living like you're ready? Let's encourage one another in this. How about we pray? Uh, Our Father in heaven, uh, we pray that you would forgive us for living as though this life is all that there is. Lord, forgive us for trying to find our peace and safety in the things of this world, in money, in health, in relationships here and now. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to have our hopes and dreams fulfilled in things that don't run into eternity. 
And Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts and capture us with a greater vision that we might know and remind each other that we belong to the day, to the day that is to come. Lord God, we thank you that one day Jesus will return. And Lord, we pray that you would help us live each day as though he's coming tomorrow. Help us encourage one another in this. And Lord, if it's death before Jesus' return, we thank you so much that where he goes, we go. We thank you for the wonderful solidarity that the believer has with Jesus. And Lord, I pray, we pray for those around us who don't yet know you, uh, those who will face that great and dreadful day apart from Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would bring them in, that they too might know the true and living God and look forward to Jesus' return with us. We pray in his name. Amen.